And welcome back to part two. Whenever Daniel Danovi and Majana and I get together, it goes for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Good times roll. It is. It is. We don't. Uh, we don't let time stand in our way of a good conversation. Daniel, welcome back to part two of the Subconscious Mind podcast, the COVID-19 bunker edition, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> miles and miles apart. Yes, we are. We are indeed. And uh, and that's the way it should be right now. We're doing our thing. We're doing it the way that, uh, that we are uh, being compliant with, with what is good practice these days. So in the last podcast, we're just going to roll right on. If folks are joining this one, they're dropping in out of the sky and landing here. We did a part one that you could uh, could pick up first. But separately from that, you had a story that you said was just uh, really gripping and uh, actually could have been something like everybody today is like, if I get this, will I die? And it picks up from there. Well, this, this story, uh, there's multiple lessons inside of it. And it came to me um, at a time when I was investigating a lot of the Seth material on you know, the original uh, channeling uh, that said, uh, you create your reality and your point of power is now. And I was learning about expanding and attracting time and probable realities and multiple timelines. And it was January 1995-96, about January 16th, I think. And at the time, I was a courier for Federal Express, and I was working in northern Michigan. And if you don't have a relationship with snow, uh, (laughs) there was 11 inches of snow on the ground. And it had previously been like in the 20s. On this particular day... It had gotten up to about 35, and it was balmy. It felt like spring. <laughs> and it you was know, probably the, June or July, too. <laughs> you know, when you go from a 20 and then suddenly you're at 35 and 32 degrees is freezing, 35, it, you know, the rays of the sun were coming down, the birds were singing, and the snow was beginning to melt. And it just felt like a great day. But at, at 11 o'clock, I'm in this uh, resort town that I was one of my, on my route. And suddenly I got hit with the feeling, the ominous feeling that today I was going to buy it. I was going to die. I was going to encounter an accident over the next 15 minutes. You know, I'm looking at every intersection and left and right. Like, is it now? Is it now? It's like, and there was this fear that was coming over me because I knew it was coming. Just one of those in-your-bone knowings. And I said, you know, this is ridiculous. And, of course, I'm talking to myself. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to spend the rest of my day in fear waiting to die. It's like I create my reality. So I started looking at, and this gets into the society of this this um, the cooperative code, co-creation aspect of it. I realized that. On some level, I made an agreement to have a rendezvous with this person at some point in time. And I began questioning, so what belief was there? What's the sponsoring belief that would make this possible? Well, you know, you know it's, 
with insurance statistics, if you drive a certain number of miles, sooner or later, you're going to have an accident. And I was fast approaching my million mile mark as a driver from age 16. And I bought into that idea that if you drive so many miles, you're going to have an accident. So anytime I had a little dinky do, like, you know, he had a fixed object, a bumper or something like that, I thought, oh, there's my accident. (laughs) But I had this belief that if you drive, an accident is a high probability at some point. Well, I had the good fortune of having a compatriot, uh, my wingman that worked next to me, Claire McNally, who never, ever had an accident. And I asked him, he says, not even in your personal car? Nope, never. And that just baffled me. How could you never have an accident? And I thought, that's a belief. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to adopt the belief that I'm not participating in accidents from here on out. And every time the fear came up in my mind that this was coming, that there was an accident coming, I, in my mind's eye, I took the image and I pulled it and pushed it down to the lower left. Now, that's an NLP technique, uh, playing with submodalities, supposed to gaining distance and minimizing the image. So I shrunk it down and made it dull. I basically pushed it aside and said, I reject this. I reject that possibility. And then, of course, you don't want to just leave it with what you're not, what you're resisting or what you don't want to happen. So as soon as I said, I reject this, I ushered in what I am creating is I realized that I agreed to have some kind of experience. I'll be there, but everyone will have the experience that they need, yet walk away safely. And I, every time that fear came up, I pushed it aside and said, I reject this. I'm inviting in this other opportunity, this other possibility. And the original feeling came on at 11 o'clock. I did this in between every stop, um, continuously until 1.30. And then at 1.30, the feeling of fear just disappeared. It just went away. And then I forgot about it. And in January, the sun goes down sometime around at 5 o'clock in Michigan. And as soon as the sun went down, I was finishing up my day. I cleared with my dispatcher to head back in. It was 80-mile drive back. And it, this started to get cold again. So as I, I got on the highway, heading back again, I forgot all about the situation. And I began to notice that it was lightly misting. And it was beginning to freeze around the outside of my windshield. And then the rear end just gave way a little bit, you know, the traction on the rear tires. And suddenly I said, this is it. And as soon as I said, this is it, off into the left-hand field of my vision, I saw a red Grand Prix leave the road on the opposite side of the highway and start driving through the median, plowing through the snow, heading right for my door, the driver's door. And I can remember yelling, no, like this isn't supposed to happen this way. And as soon as I yelled, no, it's almost as if everything slowed down for a second or two and then sped back up. 
And that was just enough time for us to miss. And I knew, knew it was going to miss me. I looked in my rear view. That guy did a 360 in the highway, cars all around. And then he slid back into the median backwards. Never hit anybody. No one. Got, and then I saw people starting to pull over. And so I figured he had his experience. I had my experience and I drove on. <laughs> wow. And so this is, you know, some people said, well, I jumped timelines. You know, if all time happens simultaneously, and I believe more that I just, I attracted a different probability. You know, any, any possibility, probable future is out there for you to plug into. It's which ones do you choose? And in that moment, I chose a different outcome. And I recognize the fact that we do co-create and there are sponsoring beliefs. And according to Seth, that if you have a belief that something is a probability for you, like someone says, I could get sick, then that is on your radar. It's a possibility. And in 19... It was 1995 when I declared that I wasn't going to get sick anymore. Like I noticed that on my employee calendar that I specifically got sick with the flu, with flu-like symptoms, predictably in November, in around Christmas, which coincides with peak season for, you know, the, the package industry. And then again in January and then March. And Year after year, like I got sick every time. I go, huh. I immediately saw if there's a pattern to it, that's totally my mind. And so I I stopped believing or participating in sickness. And knock on wood, well, that's that creates a problem. That that actually that knock on wood suggested I'm a, could be a victim somewhere down the road. No, I'm just not participating in sickness. I'm I'm in the being of wellness. And do you have a little another little story? Time for a little story? Sure. About the whole being the cure? Sure. And I, I get this from Wayne Dyer. And he told the story of how in feudal Japan there used to be opium dens. And if you had enough money, you could sit and lay in that opium den until you dead you're dead or your money ran out. And so these, you know, you highly addictive. And invariably, your money would run out. And when it did, they would kick you out in the street. Like, you're gone. And so the street was littered with opium addicts. Well, the Shaolin monks would come in and start gathering up these men and nurse them back to health. And they taught them to be more than an addiction. They said that their body had an addiction and taught them how to be the cure how to be health and wellness. And in being this is how you align your heart with your mind and your body. It's congruence. And when you're congruently being in the world in health and wellness, is your nutrition aligned? Are your practices, um, is your thinking aligned with health and wellness? Then there is no room for sickness. It just, it, there's no possibility for it. And so for years, I was 
being health and wellness. And I would invoke that in anytime I would feel something. And I'm in the guys, I'm in the plan, in the process of being health and wellness. It's, it's the idea that you can't be a little bit lost. You're either on your way or you're lost. <laughs> and a lot of people declare themselves lost. And once you're lost, that's the only way you can be. There's no place to go. You're lost. And I love the quote from Daniel Boone that says, I've never been lost, but I was once bewildered for about three days. <laughs> and it's in that thinking, it's like he was always on his way to his destination. It's just that he wasn't quite sure of where he was at that moment in relationship to where he wanted to be. And so I hear it all the time. People say I'm stuck or I'm lost or I, I don't know what to do. It's like be in the idea that you're on your way to somewhere. You're, you're in the process of finding where you're the closest path to your destination. And you're always on the path. The moment you declare yourself stuck, that's the only way you can be. There's no room for anything else. So being the cure, being the cure, being health and wellness. Let's turn it to the economic side. We've talked a lot about the uh, the medical and the physical side, but a lot of people are facing perhaps maybe not so much a health risk or they might weather the storm just fine. They're not in the high risk category, but the the economic side of the toll of this is is hitting them hard. What would you say to them? How would you apply it that way? Well, there's one is the idea that you can have your own personal economy, economy that you don't have to be plugged into the the mass consciousness. So, the, what are the different ways of doing that? One is you may be called to start your own business. It could be a side business. It could be following your passion and some, you know, when we're trying to make something happen is usually when we create the most resistance. And by being aligned with where's your passion, what have you been called to always do at this time, at this point in time, let's say your, your, your job, or your career vaporized, and you suddenly find yourself, you know, jobless. Going back to my original question that I give, you know, my, my clients is what does this now make possible? And considering probable realities, what belief do you have right now that's getting in the way of you generating your own income, of generating, you know, a completely different revenue stream? Like you were talking to me the other day and you have, you know, different multiple streams of income coming in, different projects. And they, they started out as passion projects to a certain degree with the audiobooks and you know, that is a stream of income. So in the day of the internet, there's a lot of different ways of to make income or to do things. Um, you know, the way we work may completely change. So part of the, keeps, the thing that keeps us stuck is our unwillingness to be flexible. It makes me, reminds me of a bio, biology term called requisite variety. It's the idea that Organisms' rate of survival is directly related to their ability to adapt to a changing environment. If you only have one way of being in the world, then chances are you're going to go extinct. 
That's true. And if this is an age of transformation, it is opening up to new possibilities and letting go of old concepts of who we thought we were. And really, our self-concept is nothing more than an idea of who we think we are or what people have told us we are. It's not who we really are. You know, I did one the other day. I don't think I told you this, but Majana has this habit that's really dangerous. It's called Groupon. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard of that? Uh, who has a I, habit? <laughs> I have heard of that. She was Grouponing the other day, and she said, oh, and, and this was something that I had seen in my astrology chart, so we had talked about it on a number of walks. And it was a real estate course, you know, get your real estate license. And here was this multi-hundred dollar course that was on sale for just a couple of hundred dollars. And I just leaned into it. I just bought the course and I searched the company, of course. I did some research. There were several there to choose from. And I just got the real estate course, not because when all this is over, I'm going to go out and sell houses, maybe, But I know that in my astrology chart and in my personal history, I've done really well around that area. So there's an energy, there's a vibration that resonates well with that area. And we've even talked about some possibilities around real estate development when this is over that might be in demand uh, on the other side of this. So that was kind of one of those, I like the term Mike Dooley uses, pitches to the universe where I don't have an agenda, but I've, you know, through this time, I'm going to manage my time so that I can complete this course in a timely period. And then we'll see what's on the other side, but at least I'll have another skill in the toolbox. Absolutely. Most people don't realize uh, just how many skills, viable skills they have. You can take any job you have and break it down into several different categorical skills that any one of them could be making you money on the side. Um, If you've been in the workforce for any time whatsoever, uh, one of the things I teach some of my clients to do is go back over every job, whether you got paid for it or not, over your entire life, every hobby that you've had, and just write down all the skills involved in performing that job, in, in functioning in that hobby. And there are invariably uh, very economical or money generating skills there that could be farmed out or, you know, there's so many different possibilities for making money. Yeah. And I think I've said this on here too, that after this, there's going to be a whole new industry created that should last for at least a couple of decades, if not longer around preventing this kind of thing in the future. So that's going to be anything from like the business you were in of basically moving supplies from one area to another to um, defensive uh, protections for when this happens again. And then there will be healthcare jobs that will open up from this. I mean, there's just a whole plethora of things that will be on the other side of this that will offer options and opportunities. And many people will become millionaires very fast on the other side of this. But you had asked me before in the pre in the previous podcast what it, what projects that I might be taking on, and one of them is I have a course or a, 
um, a talk that I give called Epic Vitality. And it's how, and it's all based on psychoneuroimmunology and how do we boost our immune system by regulating stress, how to, you know, based on our thinking, our word choice and the images that we create in our mind, how do we build immunity? How do we build epic vitality? Most people have never made the decision to be epically healthy. It's like, it's, you know, in the the old uh, phrase, when you have your health, you have a thousand dreams. And when your health is on decline, you have only one. Mm -hmm. That's to get healthy. Get it back. And if, if nothing else in this time and age, you know, you're going to see a whole new, um, I guess, industry open up around immunity and lifestyle choices in, you know, Zoom. I wish I had, <laughs> wish I had bought stock in Zoom. <laughs> you know, it's th- so these these different platforms, and we we will be interacting in a different way. But I don't see us, you know, the social distancing lasting forever. Um, it's just not how we're built as human beings. Right. Right. Yeah, we'll have to get past that in a non-vaccine way. And that comes back to that uh, stuff that you and I both believe in and Kimberly believes in, Majana believes in, but the FDA won't let us mention it on here. And now I guess Facebook's going to turn you into the WHO if you talk about colloidal silver. Oh, about about that substance that uh, seems to have tremendous uh, health effects. But anyway, we won't go down that rabbit hole. But yes, there will be. And, and, you know, maybe even that does become viable. I don't know. Uh, you got to stand up against Big Pharma on that. But um, yes, absolutely. And there are ways, if you are, are attentive and open and watching and looking and saying, how can I apply my skill set or learn a new skill set in this new environment that's going to be created? It's going to it really will be quite prolific on the other side of this. And I think much better economically in the end than what we even had before. You know, it just popped in my head. There's a, a quick little process that I learned from Robert Schuler of uh, the, the minister of the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California. He used to do this thing called count to 10 and win. So one of the ways when you're looking at money-making opportunities, it's, and you want, let's say you want to make a million dollars. So at the very top, you know, you number it from one to 10, like, can you, one way to make a million dollars is sell something for a million dollars. Two is to sell two things for 500,000. And you just break it down into it's until you're, you know, getting a a dollar from a million people. So that then it usually, one of those scenarios fits into your mindset or into your concept of what's easiest for you to make money. And that begins an approach. And then you start looking uh, in, in this day and age, you know, when I was doing this early on, you didn't have the internet. You So, but you could look at all the different ways you can make money in a particular industry. And with access to specific communities, you can niche down and to find, you know, 46, I have a, I have a client who is only presenting uh, health and fitness, uh, working with men 40 to 65. Mm. only men mm. and it's it's those that were once in shape and find themselves out of shape and they want to get back in shape and just dealing with the, the metabolic processes of an older man 
or what they call someone with the dad body. And so he has niched down to very specific and then he's not even doing it in the gyms. He'll go to your home and, and do workshops there, you know, train you right there, do the, so it's very niche. It's very specific. You have, and you just start advertising. You start finding out where those guys congregate and he had a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all great ideas. When I was in college, I remember having just meeting somebody in the cafeteria that was from, I don't remember what country. And his comment was, Americans are so used to the way they live, they can't see the forest for the trees. They think it's so hard. You have to work so hard to make money here. That's why so many foreigners come over and do very well because we see all the abundance that's available. You're looking through a different lens. And through the years, I've thought about that. I'm like, oh, I exemplify that statement. I've done many, many things in my life. I know I have many skill sets, but I still look at me going, I don't know what to do. (laughs) I don't know what I'm good at or what niche I should feel. So I think a strategy that's very helpful is to just ask people you know, that know you, that know you well. Hey, what could you see me doing? You know Mindy Odlin, right, Daniel? From yeah, yeah. Her "What If Up" is perfect for that. You know, she. Have you heard of her program? No, I haven't. She's done this for gosh, years and years. And when when we can all be together, basically, one activity is one person stands in the middle of a group, and that that's in a circle, and you just pose a question or what you perceive as a problem. I would like to something, but I, I'm stuck. And everybody just, it's like brainstorming, right? They just throw ideas out. Well, what if you did this? What if you, and it's amazing how things just build and you you get new ideas. What if up? Well, I love that. I, I love that whole process of brainstorming. And I just want to throw out there, when you're in the process of brainstorming, do not judge what comes out of your mouth. Like throw as much spaghetti as you can against the wall, see what sticks and don't even sift through it till a day or two later. Cause it's, you know, you look at all kinds of inventions like post-it notes and, you know, Velcro that originally had no use. It was, you know, the post-it notes was based on a glue that did not stick. And it's like, how can we, how can we utilize this? You know, and they came up with, there was uh, Roger Van, I think Van Ock, who taught creativity uh, and Tony Buzan, they would have this exercise where you would try and come up with 200 uses for a paperclip. And I've taught that in my courses and, you know, it's amazing the things you can come up with. Once you start releasing the limit, getting outside the limits of your mind, and, you know, this is subconscious mind mastery, it's realizing that you have patterns that you live inside. And one way to live creatively is to begin entertaining the question, the what if um, I wasn't this person? What if I did have all the skills? What if I, you know, what if I did know? Like you were saying earlier, like, I don't know what I want to do. And it's like using your imagination. And what if I did know? What might I, where might I begin? Where would I start? And it's, but not qualifying. Like let your subconscious, your other than conscious run rampant and write down as many different ideas without judgment or qualifying them. 
to begin with and just seeing what, what you can come up with. Could you come up with a hundred different ways to make money? You know, you know, it could, you know, the first thing that popped in my head, I could be a prostitute. You know, it's, it's an honorable living. It's, but then, you know, how many, other, how many services could be like that, that people go outside or um, it could be cleaning the house. It could be washing cars. It could, all that stuff is based around service. And so you can take one concept and, and create a satellite of ideas around that basic concept. There's that. All kinds of possibilities. Good. You know, there was one question that threw out that was just popped in my head. Um, it was mentioned, and I've seen it mentioned a couple of times in the Subconscious Mind Mastery Facebook page, is what do you do if you, your spouse or your significant other doesn't share the same view on creating, on law of attraction that you do? Or maybe they're they're focused on stinking thinking and so how do you deal with that and part of it it goes back to creating your own personal economy ecology in economy and there's a couple rules one if you want to create something and it's outside of the realm of what you've done before keep it to yourself until you build enough momentum enough of your own belief system that it will propel it past any judgment, any criticism. You know, most of the time we want to share it, and some people say that my partner is so such a negative thinker. And, you know, I'm, I believe in monogamy. I believe in long-lasting marriages, but you may have to make the decision. Maybe you're no, you've grown to a point where you no longer have a shared vision for your life. And, but I would discuss it with them first, and, you know, before you automatically make the decision, because they may be willing to change right, if they know right. that the stakes are that high. <laughs> give them a so chance. <laughs> give them a chance. If they don't um, listen to the first 50 episodes of this podcast, then you've got your ticket. <laughs> you've got our <laughs> permission granted. <laughs> but we create our reality to the degree that we're willing to basically give a F you to everybody else. Because the moment we begin acquiescing what we want in our choices and our what intuitively comes within us to appease other people, that's the, that's where our creative ability stops. Because mm. you many times to create the life that you're really intending for or intended, and I had to make this decision in my my first marriage, is that I realized that what I wanted to create for my life didn't fit into the the paradigm or the confines, the context of the marriage I had created. And there's a great book called In the Meantime, which talks about meantime situations and meantime lovers and meantime, like you're in this experience for the meantime to get between here and there. It's the getting through the going through. And you may have to make a decision that, you know, you need to create a different relationship or just change the rules inside your current relationship. And sometimes you just have to let people be and love them for who they are as much, you know, filled with stinking thinking or, you know, limited perspective as they have. Yeah. That becomes a very individual situation case by case of whatever works for you. I told you, I, in fact, I think you probably know this person, but coached me for a while. She was, she came through our mutual roots of landmark who she and her husband have been together for about 30 years 
And what they did is every year on their anniversary, they would go to dinner and they would have a basically re-up, if you will, for the next year. And their agreement, this is just what worked for them, right? But their deal was if you re-up for the next year, you're all in until the next year's review. But the, their deal with each other was if any, if either of us want out to step away from it, then on that anniversary, we can negotiate that separation. And they had two beautiful daughters and did very well successfully in the chasing the abundance and, um, and stayed together for all those years. But it just worked for them to say, you know, it's not like you're trapped here. And if by choice you want to leave, you're free to go. I love that. I, I used to be very much against divorce or breaking, you know, ending a relationship. But, you know, you don't really want somebody with you that doesn't want to be there. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm I'm all for that that agreement. I love that, that re-upping, recommitting. And some people have said, well, you know, it might be that you'd want to – um, maybe not make it a full year because if in that year things start to go downhill, you might want a back door. But then I think that gets into um, other things of, you know, the other part of what they created was commitment for a defined period of time. You know, and it's a period of time that you could could live with. So even three months in, if something happened, let's say even somebody was unfaithful three months in. Well, you've got a year You've got nine months left to say, we're going to either figure this out or, you know, that that was a deal killer. You can expect what, what our next meeting will be. I'm telling you now. Um, but at least it gives you time to work through it. You know, I think there is there is some brilliance designed into that for sure. Uh, I'm a big proponent of the com- you know value of commitment because I think too many marriages end early because they're not truly committed. It's like, if things go smoothly for now and commitment is that you get the value of staying the course, even when there's bumps in the road. And I'm in, you know, and I looked at committing in my marriage, it's like I'm committed because I get the value of whatever difficulty, whatever argument and whatever, you know, and we've had, you know, a couple of doozies and where you question, you know, am I with the right person? And, you know, you look at what you're committed to and you stay the course and things usually get better. It's, and it's born out of that commitment because it's easy to change directions. It's easy to take, you know, different paths because it seems easier, but it, you know, is it the best route? Is it what your life, you, what you want your life to be about? Those are the bigger questions you need to ask. Yeah. And it, just some, just because you're committed, you know, you need to look at it in the context of who you want to be in the world. You want to look at it in the context of, you know, what do you really want to create? My only piece that I want to throw in there is because I completely agree with the whole commitment thing, unless there's abuse and abuse is never okay. Get out. <laughs> I 100% agree. They don't. Don't ask if or when, just go. Just go. Yeah. Yep. And and if it happened once, it's going to happen again. So don't stay around for strike two. Just go. There used to be this thing in our world called baseball. <laughs> <laughs> in and big it, coliseums. In the baseball analogy, you are playing a game in a one-strike-you're-out inning. 
there is no second out. One, one strike, you're out. That's it. That's a mic drop moment right there. One strike, you're out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much again. Thanks for being with us and for sharing some time and your wisdom and your thoughts and your insights on what's going on and how we can up our game and make it better. But before I leave, I would like to extend an invitation. I I just set up a a Facebook group that I'd like to invite people to. It's called the Extreme Gratitude Project. Awesome. I've only got like maybe 10, 15 people that have enrolled so far. But I'm going to really kick things off. And it's all about really getting, you know, gratitude down to where you you make that the focus and appreciation for a month. You go to an extreme measure for 30 days and just see how it changes your perspective on the world and your connection to abundance. Awesome. So is that a closed group? Do they just join? Is it automatically you're in or how does it work? They apply. And, you know, I just I check to make sure that you're a real person, that you Mm -hmm. have a profile Mm -hmm. Um, and then you're in. And and then if you abuse the, the situation, I'll kick you out. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's my group, but I, I want to make sure that the energy's right. And, you know, if you're connected to this podcast, I, I, there's usually a spike to, you know, people investigating what I'm up to. So it's just the extreme gratitude project. Good on Facebook. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. All right. We'll stay safe. And when we can get back together, we'll do a, another trio in the booth here. That'll be fun. Fantastic. I look forward to it. And Daniel's contact information is in the show notes. It's danov.com, but don't worry about the spelling. Just go to the show notes and you can click from there. His email is there as well. And obviously, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. The opinions on this podcast are those of the host based on personal experience only and are not intended as medical or psychological advice. If you are experiencing symptoms that require professional treatment, please contact a licensed medical practitioner. The stories and opinions expressed on this podcast are independently those of the host and guests and are not intended to be taken as medical advice or to replace medical care from a licensed professional when appropriate.